Welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast by Scott L. Wyatt, President of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript for today's podcast. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. I'm your host, Steve Meredith, and joining me in studio today, as he always does, is Scott. How you doing? Terrific, thanks. Thanks, Steve. It's good to see you. I think most people don't know that we do a bunch of these in a row, and uh, unlike when they do it for a game show or something on TV, we don't even change shirts in between uh, In between when we do one podcast to another. Yeah, it's so radio is awesome. It, it? it really is, especially if you look like me. I've got a radio <laughs> face, to be sure. Anyway, we're going to, well, it's, it's evaluation season. Uh, we've actually had a podcast about this last year where the universities get ranked by various uh, organizations and um, actually, I, I think it was one of our most listened to podcasts. It's actually a, a pretty interesting and lively discussion about how generally unfair um, those rankings tend to be, or at least stacked towards one particular group of, of universities. Yeah, and we tend to change our behavior to meet rankings, and sometimes that's not the kind of behavior we want to do or should do. We're going to follow up on that in a slightly different way today with our guest. We're going to talk a little bit about the evaluation, and why don't you introduce him? So we are delighted to have with us today Dr. Grant Corser from our psychology department. And uh, Grant, you've had an interesting life, and um, I've seen you on a motorcycle and in the classroom. <laughs> and I've been able to listen to you um, lecture on these topics a few times, and it's just really fascinating. But why don't you give us just a little introduction to your professional background. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for uh, having me, Dr. Meredith and President Wyatt. I'm happy to be here, and I hope that um, what we talk about today will be informative to, to us as a group, but also to those that might listen to us. Um, I'm a, a research psychologist by, by training, and I've spent most of my time looking at aspects of, of human emotionality and senses of self and how these things really affect our day-to-day -day life and how we can start to use some of the knowledge we have about psychological processes and our, our own sense of who and what we are to, to really better the human condition. I mean, there are plenty of, plenty of things out there that can make our life easier, can make our life better. And having a certain measure of understanding about who and what we are always seems to be beneficial to, to our existence, not only for us, but for other people. So I'm glad to spend some time with you all today talking about these things. One of the things that we've talked about before, and I've, I've heard you um, present on multiple times, is about self-evaluation and how difficult that is. It's hard... Uh, enough to be evaluated by somebody else and and uh, accept it, but taking that another step beyond, it, 
in evaluating ourselves and responding to these other evaluations. It's certainly at the core of what we do at universities because we're evaluating students. Uh, when people think of a university, they think of grades. Um, but why is it so hard for us to objectively evaluate ourselves? We're smart people. It shouldn't be that hard. Why is it so hard? You know, we are smart people, and humans are, are doing really well. Despite a lot of our, our problems, despite a lot of the challenges that we face often, we, we do quite well. So we, it's difficult often for us to take a look at who and what we are because what research and experience tells us is that we as humans like to be fairly consistent and we like to have a fairly predictable future in front of us. We like to have a sense of perceived control. As we start to look inward, as we start to look at who and what we are, it can be a little bit uncomfortable. So built into to us humans are all kinds of mechanisms that allow us to have a sense of constancy and a sense of perceived control. You know, we, we oftentimes look at our own behavior in a very different way than we look at others' behavior, even if it's the same type of behavior that's happening. <laughs> and, you know, in, in hindsight, it becomes a little bit funny, and we might even seem a little hypocritical. But the great thing about this, this self that we have, or this part of us that starts to organize all these ideas of who and what we are, is that there are mechanisms in place to allow us to improve and to allow us to do better. Now, it's not often, it's not always a, a clear-cut, without-difficulty process, and sometimes it's painful to take a look at ourselves. But as we look at ourselves for the purpose of improvement or for evaluation that leads towards improvement, we've been equipped quite well to be able to overcome some of these pains associated with self-evaluation and to really to really move forward. Um, it turns out that we as humans don't like to spend a lot of time thinking about ourselves, and part of the reason for that is, uh, is, is we're, we're really the most happy, we're really the most content when we have a slightly exaggerated sense of our skills, capacities, and abilities. So often taking a close look at who and what we are can knock some of those things down and put them into a, a state of reality that we then are equipped to fix. So as long as I continue thinking that I'm just a little bit better than I am, then I'm happier. That's what the research wow. indicates. And, you know, again, when you look at this at face value, you go, what's wrong with us humans? But then understanding that, you know, our emotionality is really driven by just a slightly better sense of who and what we are rather than what we actually are uh, seems to be quite useful for us and allows us to function well. So when I, um, when I talk to some people about um, whatever it is they're doing, I commonly hear, probably from myself as well as anybody else, that if, um, if we fail at something, we tend to seek an external cause first rather than immediately try to reexamine what we might have done wrong. Is yeah, that? that? That's accurate. And a lot of psychologists refer to this as a self-serving bias. 
And so it's a protective function that's built into us. If we, you know, fail at something, our first reaction is to somehow give it an external cause, just like you're saying. And a common example that's used in a classroom setting is if I'm a student and I fail an exam, the easiest way to maintain a sense of positive self-view is to blame it on the exam, blame it on the professor. If I am getting closer to a self-evaluation or a self-cause in this, I might say, well, it's because I work too much. But it seems to be pretty difficult for us humans just to say, I failed this exam because I did not spend enough time studying. Or I failed this exam because I'm just not at a place where I need to be in order to be successful at this exam. By externalizing it, by putting it on to some other cause other than an internal cause, it really allows us to protect and maintain that that slightly higher sense of who and what we are. That's really interesting. It's pretty fascinating. You know, there's a little bit of a an opposite direction of that. Um, if we have successes, we tend to almost immediately attribute it to an internal cause. So if I take an exam as a student and I do really well, then it's not because the professor created an easy exam or it's not because the content was just easy for people to understand. It's because I studied really hard and I really understood this or I'm an intelligent person. I can pass this kind of test because of the things I do. That tends to be the default for those things that we do that are positive, but we do tend to externalize those things that are more negative. It's interesting that when we look at other people's behavior in the same context, that process tends to flip a little bit. So if I have a friend in a class where I'm a student and he or she does well on an exam, I tend to also point towards an external cause. Well, it was because the professor created an easy exam. But if that person, friend of mine, or whomever fails, that is talking about the other, then we tend to give an internal cause for that person's behavior. Oh, that person just didn't study enough. So starting to piece a lot of these things together, we start to get this interesting view of the human sense of self, the things we do to protect it, the things we do to maintain it, and the things we do to regulate it. And it creates a pretty interesting picture as we talk about or think about evaluation. But overall, we have a tendency to not want to engage in self-evaluation, again, for that purpose of wanting to maintain who and what we are. Yeah, so I'm thinking about this in the context of um, so many things. But for example, uh, when I was in law school, um, if somebody did a lot better than me, I would think, uh, his dad's probably a lawyer, and so he probably heard this stuff at the dinner table, so it was probably naturally easier for him. That's an external uh, cause for someone else's success. That's right. That's right. And it's an external cause for my lack of success. That's right. Yeah, so if you, if you kind of imagine this if, on a... If I do well, it's my credit. If mm -hmm. I don't do well, it's somebody else's fault. If someone else does well, it's some external cause. And if somebody else does poorly, then, then it's obviously their fault. That's, that's the natural default. That, that's, that's our tendency. And, and again, we, we believe 
that these processes are to help us maintain a sense of constancy and a sense of perceived control. And when we look at this, maybe societally, we go, oh, this is a little bit problematic. But when we look at it for the individual, it seems to work really well. So in other words, if this is a process by which we can maintain a little bit of positive sense, or excuse me, positive self-view, um, then this is a really good thing. But if we start blaming people for some of their failures, not knowing what the actual cause is, then we can see how at a societal level this becomes a little problematic. As we think about this, though, in terms of education or in terms of individuals wanting to make changes, because we have these, these processes and these wants to maintain self-constancy, that is to maintain who and what we are, it really becomes an active process in order to, to change. Uh, one of the professors with whom I used to work, his name was John Alt, he oftentimes has told this story about exoskeleton animals like a crab. You know, he would talk about how individuals like a crab with an exoskeleton have the need to change and the need for their inside to grow. And at certain points, they need to shed off that hard protective exoskeleton and until that grows back, they become very vulnerable. But the default is if they remain in that skeleton, that exoskeleton, and their inside continues to grow, um, they're in an even worse state. They get suffocated. And so he would often talk about this idea that individuals need to become vulnerable by examining their self and who and what they are until they're able to build that protective reality hard shell around them again. That's, that's a great analogy. Well, I give all credit to him on that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we, um, you're, this is an interesting thing to kind of, at first glance, it seems like this is a horrible thing. Mm-hmm. That, if I have a success, I automatically give myself credit. If I have a failure, I automatically find an external cause. It just seems like that's a ridiculous human condition. But what you're saying is, is that it, it actually helps protect us. And I'm thinking about that. So we have to find a balance somehow, right? I'm thinking about that in the context of all of the students at our school who have so many anxieties and self-doubt and wondering if they can survive school. Um, and maybe those kinds of things are help protecting their self-concept. Yeah, they absolutely are. And <clears throat> I think students come to a university context with the idea that there's going to be some change, you know, some change in who and what they are, some change in their, their value system. There's often a testing of, of values, a testing of morals, a testing of these things that happened during these first few years of being in a university context. But I don't know if they realize the degree to which it actually takes a concerted effort and work to make self-change. The self-preservation is, is, is quite strong. But what happens is as students are encouraged to, to really look at who and what they are, 
and to to make you know as cliche as it might sound to make realistic active goals it starts to create within them these things called uh, well it starts to create within them this concept of, of what we call dissonance or cognitive dissonance so students can start to see where they are now relative to where they want to be and if those individuals are realistic in their future goals and where they want to be it creates this discrepancy and that discrepancy is accompanied with a feeling of discomfort you know this is the the whole idea of a, a dissonant state is to experience discomfort and as people start to feel this discomfort there's this other great regulatory process within us that happens that causes us to want to get to where we want to be. We call this just simply a self-regulatory process. And as this self-regulatory process kicks in, we start making active progress towards those, towards those goals that we've created. And then when we get to that point of really evaluating once again where we are now relative to the goals that we've set, if we've accomplished those goals, or more specifically, if, if our students have accomplished these goals, then they're met with um, an affective state of, of reward. Then they start to feel that they've done something well and they're able to move forward um, from where they are. Now, if, if they look at their goals relative to where they've been, then this recreates if they look at themselves relative to where they've been and they're not where they want to be, then this creates a, a re-established sense of dissonance. And once again, to try to get out of that sense of dissonance or that feeling of dissonance, uh, we start moving towards those, those goals. And one of the end goals you know, for students, for most of us in education and in other parts of life, is to achieve this state of happiness. And one of the ways that happiness has been defined, and I, and I love this definition of happiness, is making reasonable progress towards goals. And part of the reason that when we're making progress towards goals we feel happy is because we're reducing this state of discrepancy or this state of dissonance. And so really, we end up being in the business of helping people be happy, not because they've accomplished things, but because they're making relatively good progress towards those things that will ultimately expand their sense of self and who and what they are. So it's a great business to be in. So there's a lot of research that shows that people that have a bachelor's degree are happier on average than people who don't. Is this one of the reasons for that? This could very well be one of the reasons for that. You know, prior to having a bachelor's degree, if their goal is to have a bachelor's degree, this creates a discrepancy or a dissonance between current and future state. And oftentimes people talk about their college years being, you know, formative, valuable, but also really happy times in their life. And if they're making these, these adequate progresses, towards graduation or, in other words, towards a goal, they tend to experience their college time as being happy. And so one of the things we can do as educators is to help students reflect on 
where they've been and where they are now. It's, education is, is such a, a rapid process that takes place. And because, like I said in the beginning, we don't oftentimes spend much time thinking about ourselves, or in other words, we don't engage in introspection too much until really forced to do so or until life circumstances kind of cause us to do so. As educators, if we're willing every now and then to just say to students, think about what you knew at the beginning of this class. And let's say you're at midterms now and you say, think about what you know now relative to a specific concept. Oftentimes helping students realize that they've come a long way or they actually know a lot more now relative to what they knew causes that sense of happiness because there's a realization that they're making progress towards a goal. If, of course, the goal is to be educated or to do well in the course or to have knowledge about a subject. And that's, that's such an easy thing for us as educators to do, to just take time to, to ask students to reflect on what they now know relative to what they knew before. And it tends to be a happy moment because it's hard to sit in a class and do even nothing and not learn something. Is it, uh, are, are we in a happier state making progress to a goal or are we in a happier state having accomplished the goal? The research tends to indicate that while we're making progress towards the goal, we experience that as happiness. And then in reflection upon the goal, we tend to experience that as happiness. Oftentimes, as many of us have experienced, the actual accomplishment of the goal doesn't seem to be all that satisfying. The before and after processes seem to be pretty important. And again, we tend not to reflect on those as much as we might. <laughs> so I like to climb mountains. Uh huh. And as I get closer to the top, it's really great. When I hit the top, I think, hmm. oh, dang, now I have to walk down. <laughs> so it's... It steals my happiness a little bit because I'm standing there thinking, oh my gosh, i got to walk all the way down this thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, so it's in the process. But when process. I get home, it's a very happy, very happy thing. Yeah, in, in the happy. reflection of it, it, it again seems to be something that brings us a sense of joy or felicity or happiness. Um, and, and that's because there are processes going on within us, right? Both biological and chemical and psychological processes that are all happening for that purpose of accomplishing the goal, or in other words, another way to say that is to reduce that dissonance. But then once it is reduced, um, it's not necessarily met with a sense of happiness as much as it's met with a sense of no more discomfort. And so the absence of discomfort isn't necessarily happiness. But that moving towards a state of no discomfort seems to be experienced as happiness. And it's a great feeling. We, I harp on this a little too much in these podcasts, but our listeners know that I, I run an online music technology master's degree. And purely by happenstance, we stumbled on <clears throat> some of what you're talking about right here. We... We, had, we decided we would have a beginning of the experience questionnaire or whatever, and then do the same thing at the end, right? And part of that was 
to try and convince students because because the students in this program tend to be a little bit older and maybe mid-career and so forth, that, that they'll get very blinkered in what the goal is and, and we want them to start to define themselves a little bit more broadly. And so the assignment, part of it was, ask three people whose opinion you trust, what are your greatest strengths, what are your greatest weaknesses, what's your Achilles heel? You know, so there are four or five questions and they all seem fairly innocuous. And then then there's a self-reflection that where they they mark that and then and then they have a follow-up Skype phone call with me in the class and and I talk them through it and say what you know were there were there things on your list that didn't appear on the other list and what shocked me was how it knocked them off their pins a little bit um, and, and part of it I think is because of the newness of the experience of being in graduate school and it's just all brand new but some of it also is that here are these people that they've always imagined thought about them one way <laughs> and they've now said something maybe a little bit different or and, and some of it's very positive hey this is a great strength you have that that maybe you don't think it's a great strength but I do but always on that on the weakness side this is you know and and it's interesting to have a Skype conversation with someone because they can't fool you about um, uh, when they're discussing something like that you can see it in their face and in their uh, body posture of, of how much they've been uh, affected by that and and so my goal has as much as um, as much as teacher has been well the whole purpose of this is to get you to think about yourself differently than you are thinking about yourself right now mm-hmm. we we want you to stop identifying yourself just in this way and expand your definition of yourself and that and i think that's a little bit what you've been talking about it it's it's great to get positive feedback it's hard to get negative feedback but it's as hard as anything is to see ourselves differently um than than we might have imagined we are you know this is this is absolutely accurate and it's you know it's really part of good pedagogy you know similar to what you're saying to be able to to maybe prod along a little bit of that dissonance creation you know to prod along this idea of hey maybe you are not as good as you think you are that's why you're here but then part of that good pedagogy also is to be able to give students the the, the mechanisms and the opportunities to reduce that dissonance. You know, all of us have probably had a professor or two across our lifetime, or even people we might know now, who do really well at telling students how little they know and <laughs> to try to set up this idea of this class is important because you don't know X, Y, Z, etc. But then there's a massive failure if those professors, those same professors, don't give the resolution to that little bit of fear-mongering. You know, obviously most of us are in a class because there, there are things that we don't know or there, we have a lack of knowledge in places. And when we can give opportunities to accomplish those goals, and we can give opportunities to fill in those gaps when we've been, you know, for lack of a better phrase, exposed to our weaknesses, um, we're left in a pretty vulnerable state. And, and so this process of... Of, of what you're talking about, of having other people 
you know, discuss strengths and weaknesses of an individual and then to give chances for those, you know, weaknesses to be resolved seems to be a pretty powerful teaching pedagogy. Yeah. And it seems to be It's good. worked well for us. And as I say, it wasn't really the point of the assignment to start with, but uh, it's kind of become a marine boot camp kind of an experience yeah. for, for some of our students that, you know, on the verge of tears, kind of getting this this feedback. And I, no, no, don't, don't fold It'll up. Fine. Everything's fine. We're going to help you. And so at the end, as part of their capstone, we ask them to go back to this same list of questions and say, okay, there are two things we want you to do. Did you make progress on this list of, on your list of questions, the things that we, that you responded to? And did you see that our program helped that? Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's, two parts of that survey where they get to say, we think it could be improved by this, 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 and this, but this definitely helped and this. And so it helps us strengthen the curriculum. But but it it the students are overjoyed to fill out that exit survey. They they are so excited about what they've learned and as you say, they they reflecting back on the process is one of their happiest times. Yeah, and we often don't give enough of those those opportunities to engage in self-reflection. I mean, certainly there are more and more movements and much more research out there about being mindful and taking time to meditate and to reflect on self. Uh, but until we're kind of conscious about doing that or until it's a concerted effort, we just we just don't spend a lot of time doing that. One of the things that's that's fascinated me as a psychologist is just the degree to which we distort reality. And we'll, we'll leave it to our good friends and learned philosophers to define what reality is. But, but we as humans spend a whole lot of our time distorting the realities that we live in, you know, either so that we feel better about ourselves or we feel worse about our enemies, all these kind of things. But we're pretty active in uh, in, in the sense of distorting reality until we're kind of forced to face it. And then as we're able to break down some of these natural defenses that we have, some of these natural cognitive barriers, then we're really able to move forward in a positive direction. We can be masters of self-deception and rationalization. We, we certainly can, and we, we do it often. And I got I, an A in that in college. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think as a, we can even fall into this, you know, the, this trap if we start to you know, think of a, of a university as being an extension of self or a self-type entity. Uh, we can often distort realities you know, based around that. And so oftentimes for an organization or for an institution to, to change uh, or to improve or to, to be in a forward-thinking direction, there has to be this hard look of, of where are we and where do we want to be and is it realistic? All of this begins with being able to understand our strengths and weaknesses but we're kind of built to not. We're, we're built to protect our, our identities. And you know, since it's not my area, I don't want to get into too many issues of, of, of mental health. But we even see individuals who you know, are suffering from mental health problems who will maintain that sense of who and what they are 
even if it appears to many other people to be unhealthy. And that's part often of their therapeutic process is to really take uh, critical looks at reality for the purpose of, of change and growth. So can I, can I um, take us back to two things you've said? You're the president. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> What's he going to say? No. <laughs> I wouldn't cancel a meeting on you. Um, we are happy, you have said, when we have an elevated view of ourselves. Correct. We are also happy when we have an understanding of where we are and we're making progress towards improvement. As we're in the process. Put those two together for us. They... Sure. So, so initially, there, there is some discomfort, right? So we're, if, we, if we imagine this as walking along a path, you know, without taking a, a look to the left or the right, we often maintain our, our sense along that path or our way along that path of everything's being good. If we look to the left or the right, we might see something that is desirable, something that is good, something that we want to go after, realizing that it's not us or it's not who and what we are. So we might create a goal of saying, okay, I see this thing off to the left. I, I want that, but I am not that. And then that creates a sense of discomfort because there's some discrepancy between what we are and what we think we could be or where we think we could go. As we start down that path to the left, as long as we can start to recognize that we're making progress towards that place on the left, we tend to experience that as happiness. And then we get to that goal. We get to that place on the left. And then once again, we become satisfied and happy with who and what we are. And we'll continue down that. We'll continue being in that place on the left until there's another disruption, until we notice something else, until we have other things that we want to achieve. And high-achieving people are looking around often for more places to go and more things to do, which again creates initially a sense of discomfort but then that sense of pleasure and euphoria upon goal progress and goal completion. So it really becomes an iterative process of going back and forth between discomfort and happiness in order to move forward in the things that we ultimately want to do in life. We're happy if we have an elevated view of ourselves. Slightly, slightly, slightly. elevated view, yes. We're happy if we're moving towards becoming better, mm -hmm. whatever it is our goal is. Mm -hmm. It sounds like the least unhappy state for us is to have a realistic view of ourselves and be trapped there. Yes, that is accurate. Not making any progress for improvement. Correct also. This is why some people who have very fulfilling careers and retire become unhappy, I assume. I think that's quite accurate, yes. 
just all of a sudden they're stagnant. And this is why we see, you know, people like former presidents or we see you know, people who've had these, these storied careers like you're talking about, you know, continuing in things. This is why we often see people who have won the lottery going out and doing things and being active because that's where that sense of happiness and joy comes from is moving towards goals. So what's the number one suggestion that you would give to a student? I would ask students to, and I do ask students, to keep records, to keep journals that cause them to self-evaluate and to ask students to recognize the progress they're making towards the goals. But, but first, of course, and it may seem obvious, but I'll state it anyway, they have to create goals. Oftentimes the goal or oftentimes the goal of our student is to have a diploma, to get a degree. You know, we're taught somewhere in the second or third grade that you go to college to get a degree. If we can help our students understand that while that's a nice accomplishment, what we really want them to do is to get an education. And what that means is that they make educational goals. It's hard to make degree goals and be reasonable about that. But to make educational goals allows us to be in a place where we can make progress towards educational goals. And so I encourage my students, I would encourage other students to focus on educational goals rather than degree type goals because those become a little bit easier to measure and a little bit more easy to recognize the progress that's happening in that process. And when you say educational goals rather than degree goals, I'm, I'm assuming that you mean educational goals instead of grade goals. It could, it could very well be said that way also, yes. Because I can, I can go to the gym uh, for 30 minutes and get nothing out of it, and I can cram the night before an exam, go in and succeed, and then within two or three days, forgot it. The, the goal is improving oneself and learning, becoming. And if you're going to the gym for 30 minutes, you're doing better than most, even if you're not doing much. <laughs> I was going to say, you just described me perfectly. Which, which, Cram for five hours, go to the gym 30 minutes once a month. That, that's a perfect description for me. If the goal is to spend 30 minutes at the gym, then that's a lousy goal because right. you can spend 30 minutes at the gym without accomplishing anything. And what's interesting is that will reduce that dissonance we're talking about, right? If the goal is to go to the gym, then it doesn't matter what you do at the gym. In fact, a lot of people will make these, these physical goals of saying, I want to get healthy. You know, I, I want to engage in more exercise. And buying a gym membership is often enough to reduce that dissonance they feel between what they're doing now and the goals that they have. So we work really hard to reduce that discrepancy or that dissonance, and it doesn't take much to do that. 
So just having the gym membership makes us feel better about ourselves, just, like we've made some incremental the, step toward the, the goal. The action of buying <laughs> that gym membership is enough to start to reduce some of that discrepancy. However, you know, if there are specific goals, and this relates back to having educational versus degree goals, if there are specific educational goals, then it's a little bit tougher to reduce that dissonance just by showing up to class. If the goal is to get a degree, people know how to do that, right? And and then they'll get a degree. And they know the progress they need to make to get there. Yeah, and it, and they'll know the progress, and they'll actually feel pretty good about it. But if we want change and if we want improvement, then we need to start thinking about educational rather than degree goals. Maybe not as an institution, but as um, an individual or especially as a student to say, what are my educational goals? Am I making adequate progress towards those educational goals? Because again, if my goal is to get a diploma, to get some kind of degree, some kind of certificate or minor, I might be able to get away with minimal things and still accomplish that. But if I have specific educational goals, then it makes a big difference. And we've been talking about this in the context of a university because that's where we are and that's who we're working with all the time. But but I'm assuming, uh, Grant, this applies in every aspect of our lives and our family relationships and our hobbies and interests and just everything that we're doing. Sure. And, and in fact, all these things that we're talking about have been researched and studied outside of a university context. That is not necessarily for the benefit of improving our, our educational goals or our you know, institutions of higher education, you know, they've, they've been researched for the purpose of understanding more about the human process and how we work and how we're built, and then ultimately to benefit the human condition. And so these are, these are applicable across all kinds of domains. The processes that we're talking about and have been talking about are so basic to what we as humans do that they're applicable everywhere. I sometimes think I've got the luckiest job in the world because I'm surrounded by people smarter than me. And they're always so willing to talk about these kinds of ideas. Um, what a fun way to spend one's life. Yeah, we're, we're in a pretty fortunate place in human history where we have this luxury of, of people actively doing research to find out how we can be happy how we can experience joy and how we can avoid some some pain and failure. It's a great time to be alive and it's a great place to to work. You've been listening to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University. Our in-studio guest today has been Dr. Grant Corser from the SUU Psychology Department. Thanks, Grant, for joining us. And thanks to all of our listeners for listening. We'll be back again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Solutions for Higher Education. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript of today's podcast. The original music for this podcast was composed by Jack Barton, a master's degree student in music technology at SUU.
For more information about Southern Utah University, please visit www.suu.edu.